bringing you the truth behind the news. Welcome to The New American. Welcome, everyone. We're glad you can join us. It's October 25th, and I'm Paul Dragu. Carbon capture pipeline opponents just got a huge boost after a major pipeline company announced it was quitting due to unpredictable regulations. Also, Minneapolis-based award-winning journalist Liz Collin joins us to discuss the latest major news in the politically motivated imprisonment of Derek Chauvin. And Oregon government schools are pitching proficiency tests in what seems to be another race-motivated move. We have those stories coming up, as well as a discussion with the CEO of the John Birch Society, Bill Hahn, about the effectiveness of organization. But first, last week, Iran-backed groups launched at least six military drone and rocket attacks against bases that American soldiers use in Syria and Iraq, according to U.S. officials. The Associated Press reported that coalition forces were slightly injured in those drone attacks. On Sunday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said the U.S. expects the Israel-Hamas war to escalate through involvement by Iran proxies. They also said the Biden administration is ready to respond if American personnel or armed forces become the target of any such attacks. It sounds like that's already happened. Retired U.S. Army Colonel Douglas McGregor recently talked to Tucker Carlson about the possibility of the U.S. going to war with Iran. Here's what he said may happen if the U.S. gets involved in Israel's war any deeper than we have already gone. Well, once we are a co-belligerent, we enter this thing, it's going to be very difficult for Russia and Turkey not to also come into this fight against us because they will not tolerate the sort of collective punishment that Israel plans for Gaza. There are too many unknowns and uncertainties here. And, you know, everyone always assumes at the beginning of such a conflict, well, it'll be contained. We'll only have to fight these people, Hamas, maybe Hezbollah. It never works out that way. These things always last longer than everyone thinks. The resources required are much more profound than what we anticipated. And remember, we've already used up many of our war stocks in Ukraine. And we've left Ukraine in a state of ruins. Places on life support, a half a million dead. What are we going to do to Israel if we press ahead down this road? And it seems, listening to Secretary of State Blinken this morning, who more and more sounds like our commander in chief, that there is no room for negotiation, no room for mediation. Hamas must be destroyed. We must go into Gaza. If so, I think we're on this very dangerous road to Armageddon. McGregor also talked about what we may experience here at home on U.S. soil if the U.S. continues deepening its military involvement in the Middle East. We've had open borders now for the last two and a half years, but we've had an illegal uh, migration problem for the last three plus decades. The, we don't know who's in the country. We really don't. No one at home, Homeland Security can tell you who is here. The Europeans face something quite similar. They were bullied into admitting millions of Muslims from the Middle East and Africa. We've been bullied by our government to open the borders and let in effectively anybody who wants to come. So we don't know who's here, but we do know that Hamas, as well as Hezbollah, have positions in Mexico. Of the two, Hezbollah is much stronger, much larger, and much better equipped and financed. So we have to expect that once Hezbollah is in the war and we are against them and Iran, that much of our infrastructure will be at risk. 
My colleague and executive senior editor of the New American Magazine, Steve Bonta, joins me to discuss some of today's stories. Steve, which of those comments from uh, Colonel McGregor there stand out to you most? That's some pretty interesting stuff he said, isn't it? Well, okay. Well, first of all, his comment that his comments toward the beginning to the effect that this is destined to be a quagmire no matter what because these things always take longer than we anticipate. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. It depends on the approach that's employed. Ukraine's turned out to be that way, would you agree? Yeah, but I'm thinking of the Middle East, specifically in, you know, in the context um, of the Middle East. Uh, we all thought the, per the first Persian Gulf War was going to be a quagmire. And in a sense... I guess you could say it was because we ended if you up count with Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, if you count all you know the commitment, but the actual war itself achieved its objectives very quickly, and this despite all of the overheated rhetoric to the effect that oh, you know, Saddam Hussein and his million-man army mm -hmm. of battle-hardened veterans is so scary, and you know, in the end, yeah, unfortunately, you know, for for the Ira uh, Iraqis, uh, hard science won out. We simply had far better technology than they did, and and you know. One has to remember in the Middle East, these these Hamas guys are masters at looking scary. You know, they put on the black bandanas yeah. and they scream and yell and they parade in the streets. But that doesn't necessarily translate into comp into battlefield competence, unfortunately, for them. For I, you know, I'm not sympathizing with them either. This, I mean, this this whole Gaza affair reminds me a little bit of the third Carthage, the third Punic War, which was the one that was brought about by the oft-repeated slogan, mm -hmm. uh, "Carthago delenda est." Yeah. Carthage must be destroyed. Carthage, by that time, was a single-walled city within which the Carthaginians were basically were hemmed in. They couldn't. They, they they were shadow of their former selves. They used to have this empire. They were descendants of the Phoenicians. Actually, they inherited a lot of the Phoenician domains after Alexander the Great dismantled Tyre and uh, the Phoenician capital. And so they had this this big commercial empire on the Mediterranean. By the time of the Third Punic War, mm -hmm. there was literally nothing left but the walled city of Carthage. And the Romans finally decided that they manufactured some pretext. Um, part of the, 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 the outrage was that the Carthaginians pa practiced mass child sacrifice. So that was, that, was the, that was the reason. Anyway, Rome went out against Carthage, laid siege to them. The Carthaginians literally had no way to get weapons. They yeah. ended up using the ha women's hair to restring their, their their bows and and mm. all this sort of thing and lost miserably and every single person in Carthage was killed the city was destroyed and plowed under with salt and you know you can visit the ruins to this day so do so, you not agree with McGregor's assessment you think this will be fa uh, that it, it, Israeli it, it, and American forces are well just frankly too it depends on the on the on the will when discussing military matters we sometimes make the mistake and, I'm, and I, I hasten to add full disclosure here I'm no military man I have no military experience but I know an awful lot about about military history and you know the Romans did a lot of terrible things the destruction of Carthage was one of them but at a certain level military losses and victories mm -hmm. depend upon uh, things that are beyond the compass of, of, of moral consideration, such yeah. as motivation, such as organization, technology, right. uh, and this sort of thing. And the fact is, for hundreds of years, the Roman legions were absolutely irresistible. Right. They were seldom defeated. And the Israelis in their day were similar. You know, I mean, in the past, they, they, they've, they have several times have been attacked by multiple 
nations nations at the same time and every time you know the press roll this is it for israel they're going to lose how can they possibly prevail excuse me they've been taken by surprise etc somehow they always find a way well and and i don't think anyone thinks they'll lose now would it wouldn't this um you, no, you, no the, the question is not whether they win or lose. The question is whether they will do what needs to be done, which unfortunately is going to involve you know, high civilian casualties. The question is how much do those 1,400 yeah. Israeli lives that were butchered on October 7th really mean to them? Right. And going back to U.S. involvement, though, yeah. we continue, continue, continuously hear, and we've talked about this, but maybe it's worth at least a few seconds on here, wouldn't it be just be better if we didn't have those bases there to instigate all the all these problems and uh, and all these soldiers everywhere? Because that seems to come up over and over. It's like, well, there's U.S. soldiers here, there's U.S. soldiers here, and then they're like the Iraqis and the Syrians or whatever, or uh, Iran attacks them, and they're like, oh, now we have reason to attack them. Well, wouldn't it make sense to just get out of there? Well, of course, and you know, if we get to the point where some semblance of sanity takes over Washington, D.C. again, we're going to see that. Hopefully not in one fell swoop, because that would be unfair to all the countries around the world that we've made commitments mm. to. We saw what happened when we pulled out of Afghanistan too precipitously. Okay, And that was, that was, it was something that we needed to do, pull out. Yeah. But the way we did it was, was, was horrible and grotesquely unfair to the Afghans, to whom we'd promised so much. So you know, phased withdrawal in the Middle East, in the Far East, in other parts of the world where we have been asserting you know, American dominance over the decades is, I think, the order of the day. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it doesn't seem I, I don't know why the American people aren't pushing more for that, because that that comes up, like I said, over and over. Well, and just to, just to make a point, Israel has demonstrated more than once they're perfectly capable of taking care of themselves. Right. Right. They don't need our help. And in fact, we may be getting in the way sometimes because I know we're advising them and I can't imagine it's all good. Thanks, Steve. Next up, Minneapolis-based award-winning investigative journalist and former TV anchor Liz Collin joins me to discuss the big development in the case of the police officer who was sent to jail for 22 years over George Floyd's death. If Americans want to remain a free and sovereign nation, more people need to understand the principles and values that built this great nation. At the John Birch Society, we have the organization, the plan, and the resources to do just that. Our founder, Robert Welch, said, education is our total strategy and truth our only weapon. Go to JBS.org to learn more, including how you can get involved to work locally and impact nationally. Join the John Birch Society today. There's more reason to believe the officer serving 22 years in prison for George Floyd's death did not kill the media-designated victim. Floyd's death ignited riots across the country and it inflamed race politics to a degree that likely sealed Derek Chauvin's fate before the trial ever began. The latest development to bring this case back into the spotlight is a lawsuit filed by former Minneapolis prosecutor Amy Sweezy. Two autopsies, one by medical examiner Andrew Baker and one by doctors working for Floyd's family, had ruled the death a homicide. However, Sweezy said in a deposition that the medical examiner, Andrew Baker, told her in private that there were no medical indications of asphyxia or strangulation in Floyd's death. But apparently, Baker knew what could happen if he told the truth. Sweezy said that Baker told her, quote, what happens when the actual evidence doesn't match up with the public narrative that everyone's already decided on? This is the kind of case that ends careers, end quote. According to a memo issued by Sweezy, the autopsy results indicated that the amount of fentanyl found in George Floyd's blood was at fatal level under normal circumstances. 
So join me to discuss this latest development. Is award-winning news anchor, author of the book, They're Lying, The Media, The Left, and the Death of George Floyd, and producer of the documentary, The Fall of Minneapolis, Liz Collin. Hi, Liz. Hi, Paul. Thank you so much for having me on to talk about all this. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you for coming on. So let, to, to get this, uh, to, to make sure to, to get this right, what happened here is basically the medical examiner decided to go with politics over uh, facts. Is that is that what we're hearing here? You know, you know, what's interesting here is I brought a lot of this to light uh, w with my book uh, last uh, October. The book was released, uh, as you mentioned, it's called um, They're Lying. It was a very simple, <laughs> simple <laughs> title to settle on. Um, but this sort of filled in some of the some of the blanks. So in the book, I really detail how George Floyd's um, autopsy is conducted Paul, within 12 hours of his death. However, th this public document is kept from the public uh, for nearly a week. And I, I really think that there is a reason for that. And in the book, I go into great detail about these handwritten notes. And keep in mind, I'm a reporter, a longtime uh, journalist for, for nearly 20 years. And I was so struck how nobody was bringing, bringing this whole uh, thing, thing to light. So there is the, these um, backdoor conversations uh, between prosecutors in Hennepin County and the medical examiner, handwritten documents. Uh, they're, they're detailing their meetings, their having over the course of the days that follow. And you see uh, Dr. Baker's narrative change uh, when it comes to George Floyd's autopsy. And in fact, the autopsy was released on the same day, uh, just a couple hours before George Floyd's family releases its own autopsy. That autopsy basically says that George Floyd died from what you see on the video. And this is this is actually the autopsy that the media runs with. They they actually refer to it as an independent mm. autopsy where in fact uh, you know these are these are two medical examiners bought and paid for by George Floyd's family. So these these depositions uh, that I put together for a story on Alpha News, alphanews.org, uh, we broke broke the story there last week and they they fill into some of those blanks. So so you have Amy Sweezy on record uh, under oath as part of these depositions, saying that in fact she's meeting with Dr. Baker and and he's worried about his career. What if this doesn't match up? He he's very early on yeah. uh, saying that the medical fa findings don't match up with the public narrative. So what is Sweezy alleging in her lawsuit? Where is this directed at? Yeah, so this, uh, what's interesting is, is these depositions, they're not connected uh, to this case at all. She has sued uh, former Hennepin County attorney Mike, Mike Freeman in the past, uh, alleging uh, sex discrimination um, and some different retaliation taken in the workplace. And she sa says, though, that that all stemmed uh, from, from her coming forward uh, with her colleagues saying that she didn't believe the three other officers should be charged uh, in this case. And she's saying that after she made this dis decision and went to Mike Freeman saying that she didn't feel comfortable moving forward with this. And she, in fact, withdrew from the case. She's saying that he then basically targeted her, demoted her. There were some different things within the mm. workplace uh, connected. And in fact, that's why she ended up um, le leaving ultimately, uh, eventually the Hennepin County Attorney's Office. So how is a, a Officer Chauvin, uh, I take it he has a legal team or at least a lawyer and whatnot. And I know that you, you, uh, you've kept in contact with him or at least have had contact with him. Do you know how he is reacting to this, uh, I guess this latest development, which seems like it's kind of an old development, but it's been brought to light by, uh, by Sweezy here. 
Right. So I think that uh, I've been in touch with, you know, his his attorney and, and also him as well and these other officers and their legal teams as well. Um, you know, the other three officers, they didn't know any of this until these depositions uh, came to light. And remember, they pled guilty uh, just because they did not think that they could get a, a fair trial with everything that was was happening uh, across the country. So they decided to to plead and they weren't privy to this information. So would they have pled guilty if they knew that there was um, really a chorus of, of people within the Hennepin County Attorney's Office that didn't feel comfortable bringing, bringing criminal charges? So that's something right now their legal team is, is working on. And I think um, any time that uh, you, th this story is picked up in the news, uh, not, the, not the part of the story where the mainstream media runs with George Floyd's 50th birthday, the president uh, mm -hmm. had a birth, attended a birthday celebration uh, for him as well. But, but really the, the truth about what was going on behind the scenes, I think it's something that, that gives a little relief and, and hope. Currently, Derek Chauvin is serving more than 20 years behind bars. So, so again, I think that any time this, this kind of news uh, gets out there and, and more of the truth is, is revealed, uh, he is somewhat hopeful that there may be light at the end of the tunnel. You, you were, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were a news reporter at the time. You, were on a, you had been at a station there in Minneapolis for a long time uh, when this broke, the 2020 riots broke. Can you tell us about what it was like as a reporter? Was there pressure and was there only one narrative that was allowed to be reported during that time? Yeah, Paul, I talk a bit about this in my book, and ultimately this uh, this was sort of what pushed me over the edge and, and had me leave mainstream media because I just felt so uncomfortable with all of the information we were withholding from the public, not only on this case, but, you know, you name the narrative, and and uh, we kind of had to go along, go along with it. But I talk about this in the book, how um, I was at WCCO. It's a CBS-owned and operated station. I was there for, for nearly 15 years. This is the, the station I grew up watching. I'm from Minnesota and kind of landed the, the dream job. Um, but, but I really saw the media, you know, start to change. There was a mandate at WCCO. You know, we couldn't use the, the term riots in our reporting. Um, also, half wow. of the people we, we interviewed um, had to be uh, non-white or from a protected class class after the incident with George Floyd. So I saw for myself how we're changing the language, we're, we're implementing racism, and I guess we're supposed to feel good about that uh, as news reporters. Um, it was uh, completely crazy, and I really felt like we were, we were poisoning the public, and we're all living the consequences to this day uh, of how we did so as journalists, you know, painting painting police as as the bad guys. And how is Minneapolis now as, as a result? We saw what happened in 2020. Has it recovered, or is this looking to be a permanent uh, effect uh, on Minneapolis. Yeah, so that's why I went ahead um, to produce this this documentary because the story certainly doesn't end uh, with this case, and it's why we titled uh, the documentary "The Fall of Minneapolis" because ex that's exactly uh, what this was. We had a, a police department in Minneapolis at nearly 900 strong um, at the, at the time of May of 2020. There's about 500 officers that are left on the police department uh, now, and they've implemented all kinds of uh, policies and such that makes it nearly impossible uh, to to do the job and, and crime. Is you know, has run rampant not only in in Minneapolis but but certainly across the country. Carjackings were never a thing in Minneapolis. Now hundreds are happening every year. There's thousands of stolen cars every year in Minneapolis. Also a crime that, you know, we, we never saw uh, record homicide numbers. I mean, y you name it. I mean, I have, a, I have a part in the book called The Right Side of History, question mark. There was this mantra, we'd be living on the right side of history after all of this, but I've yet to actually find someone who thinks uh, that, that we are. 
Yeah, and I take it that it's harder now to recruit police officers and crime is still high. Is, is that what you're saying or that was before, but it's still continuing? Oh, it's uh, it's kind of spiraled um, from from there. Uh, Minneapolis really was a, a beautiful, uh, vibrant city. Uh, you have thousands of businesses that have left in the wake of this as well. So they've certainly suffered the economic uh, impacts of of all of this too. Yeah. All right. Well, Liz, thank you so much. Thank you for your reporting. Thank you for the work. And uh, why don't you write off the name of your book and documentary before we we get you out of here. Yeah, the uh, the book is called They're Lying, the Media, the Left, and the Death of George Floyd. There's more information on that on theliexposed.com or also thefallofminneapolis.com. You'll be able to watch that documentary coming up on November 16th. Uh, we are offering it for free. It was a crowdfunded uh, documentary. We just want the, the truth to, to be told um, about all of this. Thank you. Up next, we're going to look at what Oregon's doing in government schools and the latest on the carbon capture. All right, parents, listen up. We've all seen the countless examples of how radical radical leftists have been destroying American schools. It's no longer just about the terrible math and reading levels. Now radical left teachers birthed from liberal universities are forcing gender indoctrination in, in kindergarten. They're teaching lessons on white guilt. Freedom Project Academy has perfected live on, online learning over the course of a decade. I get a ton of great feedback about this program, a ton. They're built on Judeo-Christian values, a classical curriculum. What does that mean? It means they're taught, your children are taught, taught the way that the founding generations of the country. My own son Noah did Freedom Project Academy for uh, several years uh, when he was younger. The more we tell our friends about these things, the more people will get on board. And I, and I believe that we can be the catalyst to some real change. We must save the West. Our way of life and our culture is under attack. And because of patriots like you and your project, I have optimism for the future. Welcome back. Last Thursday, the Oregon Board of Education decided unanimously that Oregon high school students don't have to prove basic mastery of reading, writing, or math to graduate from high school. Leaders at the Oregon Department of Education and members of the state school board said that standardized tests harm historically marginalized students and that they do nothing to prepare students for life after high school. Here's local coverage of this controversial move. For the next five years, high school students in Oregon will not need to perform proficiency tests showing mastery of reading, writing, or math in order to graduate. And this comes as the Oregon Board of Education unanimously voted to extend a pause on the graduation requirement yesterday until 2028. They're citing inefficiency and inequity. Joelle Jones going beyond the headlines tonight to find out what this pause will mean for students. This is a controversial decision and one that's facing a lot of pushback. While some say the decision will lower state standards and cheapen an Oregon diploma, the Oregon Department of Education tells me this policy simply didn't work and disproportionately harmed students of color. All right, I'm going to bring Steve back in here. So Steve, uh, like you're a highly educated guy and you prize education here. Is this good or bad or is there some nuance there in between? Well, again, first of all, I mean, looking at the context is, you know, Oregon is just this 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 communist hellhole of a state. I mean, in fact, I don't know if you knew this, but the, the Chinese Communist Party has started buying up huge tracts of farmland in Oregon. Have you heard that? No, I haven't heard that. Because, but I was because it turns out they're hu big fans of organ harvesting. Ah. Anyway, as far anyway, as the as far as the educational system is, so have I. Yes, yeah. it's a beautiful state. Yes, but in any case, and I don't think it's all a hot communist mess. The well, certainly, 
uh, maybe west of the west west of Seattle of, of Portland, but that yeah. old Portland, that whole area, uh, yeah, that the, coast region, that's where it's at. It's just a minute. Anyway, so so, but as far as the educational part is concerned, I mean, what we're seeing seeing in Oregon is just a microcosm of of a of a nationwide problem, also being fomented by the Marxists and communist mm-hmm. subversives in our midst, which is you know the the, the cliche dumbing down of American education. But yeah. this has real consequences. Um, a movie came out, a rather crass movie, a few years ago called *Idiocracy*. Yeah, which is sort of a dystopian future. It shows America. Everyone in the future. keeps thinking that's where we're going. <laughs> well, you know, there's some basis for that because in 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 the in the in the future world of *Idiocracy*, circa 500 years from now. Yeah. They, they still sort of have technology, but everything's broken or doesn't work right because there's literally no one bright enough mm. anymore to build a new car or to fix a television set or to run a hospital or any of these. And the movie portrays this in a sort of sort of crass but, but, but definitely hard-hitting way. And this, this, is, this is a very real possibility. It happened in Rome, very interestingly, that, that, that when, when, when Rome collapsed, in part it was because people literally forgot how to build aqueducts, how to build the Roman VI, the big, the, the, wow. the incredible highways, because all the, the, all the engineers were dead and, and, and had not passed their, their skills on. So, so it is too- possible for a civilization to go brain dead. And when we say in particular, well, we're not going to worry about math anymore. Oh, yes. I, I mean, there's a popular meme on Facebook that, I, that, that always gets my goat because I'm personally a big fan of mathematics. And uh, it says, well, I got through another day without using algebra. Okay, fine. Good for you, dude. But did you know that your cell phone, your laptop, your car, pretty much every device in your house that runs on electricity or battery was designed by somebody who did know how to do algebra and calculus and solve, you know, partial differential equations and stuff like that. So you may ridicule it and you may think it's not important. But are you willing to go back to the world of circa 400 years ago when, yeah, nobody knew algebra, nobody did algebra, and we lived in a world in which higher math was inconsequential because no one knew how to harness the power of it? Yeah, and we didn't have – so what you're saying is that if we continue on this trajectory, we will not know how to maintain our uh, society here. I I, I wanted to point out, though, that it seems like the left, who claims to be so uh, pro people of color, I think are actually the racist ones because they are constantly saying that people of color can't pass tests. Uh, they can't apparently get voting IDs. They apparently, they can't do anything. So we're going to lower the standards. How do, how do people not see this? Well, it's idiotic. And, and I mean, for, for one thing, okay, let, let's talk about race for a minute. Um, a university that I used to be affiliated with, Penn State mm-hmm. University, has a very, the math department at Penn State has a very strong relationship with a number of African countries. Mm-hmm. They consistently have a large number of Africans yeah. from places like Senegal. In my case, I remember years ago when I, t- oh, I took my differential equations course at Penn State, mm-hmm. the teacher was somewhere. We had a t- hard time understanding. I believe it's from Kenya. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, no, actually it turns out that, uh, that blacks and Asians and Latinos and all the rest they of them, can all do they math. can all do math, they can and do science. engineering. Some of them can, obviously not everybody has the ability, but it has nothing to do with the color of your skin. Um, it has a lot to do perhaps with the microculture in which you live. So in the United States, it is true that we have these enclaves of minority cultures where it is being... The, the idea is being encouraged that math and science and engineering and indeed the whole range of things yeah. that appertain to modern civilization are just, 
you know, white man patriarchy stuff. That is so absurd. It, 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 it's, it's just, well, it, it's, it's not absurd. just absurd. It's dangerous, as people like Victor Davis Hanson like to point out. This this anti-education, and I use education in the true yeah. sense of the word, not the, the miseducation that's mm-hmm. being foisted off as education today. Not that, not that, okay? But real education, the value of real knowledge, including, yes, hard hard science and math, is is indispensable yeah. to to the modern Absolutely. world. Yeah, and and, and I, I personally don't know how you can go through how a person can go through life blithely taking advantage of technology and having no clue how any of it works. Now, I obviously can't don't know how to build a cell phone or a, or or a motherboard or something like that, but I have some idea of the science behind yeah. it. You know, and, I mean, that, that would seem to me that that that, that this is sort of a, a, a prerequisite. In yeah. our day, uh, this is all. This in fact, is, a liberal education used to mean not just the liberal arts, but also sciences and and math. That was that was the whole thing, right? This is all the more reason why we encourage the John Birch Society and the New American for you to get your kids out of there. Uh, this mm. is just another sign that government education is not true education, and it's dangerous in so many ways. Thank you for. Can for I just sp- put a positive spin on that? A positive spin is this: okay, educate yourself and your children. Good Generally point. speaking, sending them to government schools is counterproductive. That's a good point. We got one last story. All right. So in another victory in the larger battle against the carbon capture pipeline scam, Navigator CO2 Ventures killed its proposed $3.5 billion, 1,300-mile carbon capture pipeline last week. Navigator said it ended its pipeline aspirations because of unpredictable regulatory and government processes. South Dakota regulators denied Navigator's request for a signing permit in September, and the company has pulled its permit application in Illinois twice. The CEO of Navigator, Matt Vining, said in a statement, as good stewards of capital and responsible managers of people, we have made the difficult decision to cancel the Heartland Greenway project. The other two pipeline companies in the region, Summit Carbon Solutions and Wolf Carbon Solutions, will continue on their mission to run these pipelines from the Dakotas eastward to Illinois. We're going to be watching on that too. But they can expect the same stiff resistance that they faced up until now. And organizing some of the most effective resistance has been the John Birch Society, which, like we said, is a parent company of this magazine. In a few minutes, the CEO of the JBS will join me to talk about this latest development. But first, I'm going to go back to Steve here. Steve, I don't know, but it sounds to me like I don't know uh, that uh, we may be happy for regulations for once. Huh. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? Because we usually dog regulations because there's so many of them. But I've done an interview. I believe it was with a county supervisor, and he was talking about how one way to stop these things or at least make sure that they're safe. And that seems to have played a role in this. Well, I mean, and, and we need to draw a distinction between federal regulations, which are 100% illegitimate and unconstitutional. Thank you for pointing that out. And state leg- regulations, which may or may not be advisable or wise policy in economic ter- and other terms. But certainly the, when it becomes a state issue, mm-hmm. the, the, the terms change. They may, they may well be valid under many state constitutions. Yes, well, and that's what kicked in here. I mean, from and me and Bill will, will be going over some of this more. But we have our organizers in Iowa and all through the Corn Belt. And one thing what we realize is that it's that we, as we've reported, it's the state regulations that got in the way. Uh, these people thought they were just going to run roughshod. They were going to bully people off of their land or through their. They were going to bully themselves on their land, and it turns out that that's not the case. And we had a huge uh, part of that. Thank you, Steve. All right, folks. Uh, After this, 
the CEO of the John Birch Society, Bill Hahn, is going to talk, uh, join me, and we're going to talk about the organization that helped bring this about, an organization that can get more done. We'll be right back. I certainly would not want a constitutional convention. I mean, whoa. Who knows what would come out of that? It isn't the Constitution that's the problem. It is the people who ignore the Constitution. What we need are just more people that would read the one we have. It's up to us to hold our elected officials accountable. Who understand the Constitution and are willing to take a stand when necessary. Join me to discuss the power of organization and involvement is the CEO of the John Birch Society, Bill Hahn. Welcome back, sir. Thank you. Much appreciated. So we had a little bit of good news there at the end, and I even kind of hinted, it's like we had some, uh, some uh, we played a role in there. Uh, what do you think of this latest development? And I know that you always caution, don't celebrate too hard, <laughs> <laughs> because there's always another obstacle around the corner. But what do you make of, of what Absolutely. happened and what should we be on the lookout for? Yeah, yeah. so I do a, uh, a news show every, every, every so often, right? It's usually every other week. It's called Analysis Behind the News. Mm -hmm. And what, what we try to do with that is we, we try to in, in, in involve some JBS perspective, right? JBS is in John Birch Society, for those who may not know, but uh, some perspective in, into uh, the, the, the news so they understand exactly kind of what's, what's going on, what they don't see, yeah. stuff behind the scenes. And with this, um, I guess you'd, you'd call it a cancellation of, of, of the pipeline. And, yeah. you, and you very well pointed out there are two other pipelines. Mm -hmm. Just now, in that region, because there's pipelines in other regions around yes. the, the U.S. Yes. Um, but we, we should understand, too, that President Biden has made this a priority mm -hmm. in regards to his, um, his uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. Now, this is all part of that green transition. Absolutely, and, and we are talking about billions of dollars. So there's at least $30 billion that's earmarked for these carbon capture pipelines. And the industry states that they could use anywhere between 30,000 and 90,000 miles of carbon capture pipeline just to stay, uh, to keep up with the whole, uh, you know, Agenda 2030, um, Agenda. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, yeah, goals that, that that they've set out, you know, for this, uh, and and of course they're all shooting for this net fifty, um, or excuse me, net, net zero, zero by by twenty fifty, right? Is so, it twenty fifty or twenty thirty? Well, it's twenty fifty. Twenty fifty for net yeah. zero. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But there are certain goals, goals. that they, they're trying to reach, and so these pipelines are, are you know are are big big part of that. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, the CEO of Navigator, I'll just read a, a quick quote from her. Um, this is on keeloland.com. It says, the conversation about carbon, I don't believe, is going away, even if this project does go away because the marketplaces aren't going away. Customers are continuing to, to demand products based on carbon intensity. That is a value or characteristic that is important to them, and they will pay for products to be produced differently based on carbon intensity scores. Really? Yeah, I was going to say, is that really true? Because, well, I mean, we've been reporting on the, the faltering EV industry. Absolutely. It's just yeah. cratering. You, you, you can look back over the, over the many years where we've gotten these bright ideas where, hey, we're going to save the planet. We've got all these products that are, that are eco-friendly and all this stuff. And what happens? The American consumer says, eh. No, yeah, I right? mean, and, and so, I don't think the, this is because the American consumer and we especially, we want to destroy the environment, but I think it's no, no. for several other reasons. Exactly, yeah. And, and, and American entre entrepreneurship, 
they have predominantly taken care of the the, the, the land and the and the uh, the factories and things of that nature of the resources that are entrusted to them in order to deliver products and services to you know their right. customers right so they are rather conservative to a to a degree of of, of responsibility of taking con- uh, or not taking control but but taking um, again res- responsibility of that process mm-hmm. they don't want to uh, you know screw up or to um, denigrate you know, any any land that they have uh, they want to take care of, of their people their products you know yeah. and so on and so forth uh, but we need to recognize that again these things aren't going away because the federal government is pushing this on the American people I mean this wouldn't even be happening if it weren't for the federal government offering billions of dollars in subsidies and yet right. they still killed it because of the massive massive push and resistance of people in all those yeah. areas and that's that is one thing that we we should not lose sight of if you can recall at the very beginning of this that um the meat some of the media in the, the i think it was the iowa state media had come out and said hey we as as locals cannot fight or overcome federal projects you know, so 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 why are we even you know going? And that's going what their officials were saying too. Weren't Absolutely, they? because when, they didn't understand the many layers of strength that are built within the Americanist system. So, as as you and Steve pointed out, there's differences between federal and state, right? And when we look at where the power is, we the people hold all the power. We've just delegated some of that to the states. And in turn, they've delegated some of that to the federal government. Mm-hmm. All right. So the created cannot take over the creator. And we've given them guidelines. They need to abide by those. Yeah. Well, right? I don't know if they see it that way because we consistently. Of course they don't see it that <laughs> <Okay>. way. Because. <laughs> Newsflash. Because that, that accountability has, has largely been lost because we, the people, aren't holding them accountable. Right, but- And there are ways to do that. But wouldn't you say that part of our education at the John Birch Society is reminding people that we even have that power because how often do you run, and you just cited an example where you run into whether it be county officials or even city officials or just residents who are like, well, you know, we can't do anything because we heard that in Iowa, we heard that with people in South Dakota, North Dakota, we heard in Illinois, whereas the people are like, "Uh, no, you need to step up. And that's part of what we've been helping them understand, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So we we've had um, you know conversations, interviews you know, with with some of these officials, uh, you know, gentlemen from uh, Shelby County, uh, Iowa, uh, Steve Kankel. Yeah, I interviewed uh, Steve. Has really done a great job, you know, with 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 with, with leadership, demonstrating that it's it's folks like him that are county commissioners, county board of supervisors. Uh, you know, they they chair these things. There are so many things mm-hmm. that are that 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 our um, uh, citizens can be working on, yeah. you know, that can actually stop these these projects. Like, and and, and why be- are these projects even around? I mean, you you very well pointed out that it's government that's pushing this, right? There are so many subsidies that that, that are around this. So there's a there's another um, thing here from uh, I think it's uh, S and P uh, Global, and they say many ethanol producers have been counting on reducing the carbon intensity of their fuel via carbon capture utilization and sequestration, which would enable them to sell their product at a higher price in low carbon fuel standard markets such as California, Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia. That's why they're doing it, okay? Because there is an incentive there. But the marketplace doesn't necessarily find eco-friendly products, uh, you know, 
mm-hmm. in the long term. They will they will gravitate away from those uh, because again, it's not the it's not the free market. It's not the marketplace that's pushing these. It is the federal government, and we need to be careful too that if we think that that this carbon capture pipeline is going away just because of, of, of navigators saying, well, we're, we're, we're done. Yeah. There are other things that we need to keep in mind. Summit has already come forth and said it may actually expand its footprint mm. to en- encapsulate some of these ethanol plants and fertilizer plants that navigator was supposedly going to be you know, yeah. capturing. Summit's all dug in, huh? So absolutely. So we cannot just sit back and say, well, yeah, Good for us, you know. We 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 uh, we need to be working on this even harder. And, and now. I mean, still hard in play. I, I know you you keep up on this pretty well. Is Iowa? We still haven't seen any significant developments in Iowa that causes them to celebrate. We've seen it in North Dakota and South Dakota right. where their siding permits have been denied. Well, here's a, here's a big difference. So the the uh, the Iowa uh, Utilities Board, as well as well, the Iowa Utilities Board is a board that is not elected. It is appointed appointed by the governor. South Dakota, North Dakota, both those boards mm, okay, are elected. Are elected. The, you think that's a big difference? That huh? is a huge difference. So what what could people in Iowa do to pressure the governor or uh, the counties? Like they, can, they can certainly work on the, on the county levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and there, are, there are so many aspects of this too. I mean, as far as conditional use permits, I, I noticed that popped up in regards to, uh, you know, water, water use and things of that nature. Uh, they can they can have the power working through these 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 county officials yeah. as well as their state legislators right they have the power to stop these things absolutely well bill but uh, it will not get done without <laughs> organization yeah and with organization you need to uh, do a lot of activities a lot of planning Join the John Birch Society today to help with that in that regard, jbs.org. Yes, absolutely, jbs.org. And I'm going to add on to that because we have so much information regarding this. If you go to jbs.org and if you go to Take Action or Action Projects, one or the other, you'll see there Agenda 2030 and underneath you'll see War on Farmers. We have a lot of information there regarding this carbon capture. And we, you can also go to Take Action and contact the coordinator if you're in that region, North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, Nebraska, what else is over there? Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota, there you go, all those states. Uh, <laughs> and you can get involved. Thank you, Bill. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the New American Daily. Go to thenewamerican.com for more truth-binding news. We'll see you tomorrow.